We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you an old friend, Adrian George, also a fellow alum from Boston University, Brussels, which is how we met ages ago. Uh, she's an advocate for expat voting rights and finding a voice for women of color in Europe, American by birth and Swedish by marriage. Sound familiar? Uh, welcome, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Heidi. Fabulous to be here. It's such a treat to have you on. And right now you've got so much going on. You're right in the middle of some amazing, amazing things. We are talking a lot about global reset, but a lot of what's happening is just having a voice in this process. And I have complained for years about the fact that all the years that I lived in Europe, it was prior to the great work that you did in order to make sure that we had voting voice as expats in the US. Can you talk a little bit about, I want to really look at sort of your Democrats abroad work and sort of how you got involved in that in the first place and sort of, you know, how the voting situation has changed. Because for some people, they may not even recognize that in the US, there's sort of the popular vote and the electoral vote, and there's the delegates and all of that piece. And can you give a little bit of background of what that is and sort of where you got involved. Sure. You know, I didn't know about Democrats abroad until I actually discovered them in Brussels. When I was living in Brussels, some Belgians came to me and said, are you going to the Kerry party? And I thought, what are you talking about? And it turned out to be an election watch party in 2004 in a hotel that was, I believe, in Place de Luxembourg, I can't remember the name of it. And I went that evening and the, the line was just snaking around the corner. Of course, I couldn't get in. It was a sold out party, but it was Democrats abroad, Belgium, the Brussels chapter having an election watch party. And I didn't really think anything more of it. I knew about absentee balloting and absentee voting because I've, I've never missed an election since I was 18 and could vote. And then moved to Sweden in 2006 and for some reason felt like I really wanted to get involved with overseas voters advocacy. So I contacted Democrats Abroad Sweden and there was no local chapter. Gothenburg was the closest, but I'm in Holmstad. I think, you know, that's about an hour away and maybe an hour and a half or so from Malna by train. And the, the chair then challenged me, said, well, you know, why don't you start a local chapter? So I did that. And it was next thing you know, it was 2008. We've got a huge election coming up. It was kind of easy to get people involved. And ever since then, I've been dedicated to helping Americans vote. Because as you say, a lot of us don't even know that we can vote. We know as Americans abroad, we have an obligation to file taxes. We may not have to pay taxes, but we have to file a tax returns. And we also have the right to vote. So the main mission of Democrats abroad is what we call GOTV, get out the vote. And it's basically to let Americans know that they can register to vote and participate in elections back home. And, you know, it's not just so easy as that because every state is different. States have different rules, but you can definitely vote in your federal elections in most states. And I say I qualify most states because, for example, I think your kids were born in Sweden, correct? 
Uh, no, they were actually born in New Hampshire. We lived there for a very short period okay. of time, and they were born there. And then we moved to Sweden right after. Because I remember them to be little here. But mm -hmm. for example, if they had been born in Sweden, depending on your home state, they may not be able to vote. But I know a woman in Gothenburg whose son was born in Sweden. She votes in the state of Maryland. And, and normally states give your kids your same home state, even if they have not lived there up until they're 18. But Maryland's law changed. It may have changed back. But at that time that he was 18, he had to file taxes, could not vote, but was required to register for selective service. So that was a horrible thing for him. And he was considering denouncing his American citizenship, which just breaks my heart to think that an 18-year-old would give up American citizenship. Well, me being a woman of African-American descent, you know, you'd have to pry that my citizenship out of my cold, dead hand. You know, it was hard fought and won. We work on issues like that. But to answer your question about electoral vote and electoral college, that is to some an outdated system, definitely very, very complicated. You know, it's like we have represented vote. And I am in 2012, I was a, a delegate to our convention and it kind of works in that way as well. Elected by Democrats abroad, a large body of people to send a handful of people to go to the convention to then relay their vote to who's going to be the nominee for president. So it's not exactly the same as the how we vote in a president, but it is that basic system of representatives and not necessarily one person, one vote, which is why we have popular vote and electoral vote and why that can be confusing sometimes when the president can win one and lose the other, mm -hmm. which we've seen happen um, a few times in modern history. Absolutely. And I think it is confusing. And it's it's hard to, un particularly sort of the logic behind it, I think, because it is an outdated system. I certainly see with my own kids who are, you know, now coming of voting age, that they're like, oh, I don't get it. Why? How could you possibly, you know, we all voted and then it doesn't count anyway? Like, how does that work? And do we as or me no longer, because currently I am, I will vote in the state of California. And I reside here for the moment. But when living in Sweden, I remember basically feeling like, well, fine, it gets counted as a popular vote, but it, we don't have any electoral votes as expats. Is that still the case or has that changed? How I understand it is, as Americans abroad, we have the right, as I say, in most states to vote in our state and in our federal elections. What has happened with the formation of Democrats abroad, which is about 50 years old now, is that we're recognized, not for the entire 50 years, but we're recognized as a state party by the Democratic Party. And we have a global presidential primary every four years. So that is the one time where we can, our votes as Americans overseas are counted towards the presidential nominee. And the last two global presidential primaries that we've had, 2016 and 2020, Bernie Sanders won the majority of the American, the overseas American votes, which means that in our delegation that goes to the Democratic National Convention, we send a number of Bernie Sanders delegates. And in this year, it'll be a number of Joe Biden delegates. And that means that even if we may have a presumptive nominee, that Bernie Sanders gets to have a certain amount of delegates on the platform committee, which is where he has his most influence. For example, in 2016, 
the Democratic Party platform was basically his platform. It was the most progressive ever, you know, with $15 an hour minimum wage and Medicare for all or, you know, healthcare for all provisions or tuition free college. A lot of the things that we enjoy in Sweden and in Scandinavia and a lot of other European countries that may be seen to a lot of Americans as socialist or so radical are a lot of things that he's brought to the Democratic Party. So even though he may not be the presidential nominee, because he earned a lot of delegates in different primaries in the states and including ours, he gets a certain number of delegates to go to the convention. And the convention is where the platform is voted on and worked on. And that's what becomes what we stand for for this election year. And following in, it's kind of like the mandate that every Democrat from mayor to governor to senator, you know, kind of has. And you could say, you know, this is the platform that we believe in. This is what we want you to fight for in our state and our city. That's encouraging, actually. It's a lot better than I thought it was. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to hear there's a lot more input than just people that are, you know, sitting in their offices and assuming that they know what the people want or what the people need. No, and here's the thing. I know it can seem discouraging and your children are right to ask, but I still believe that everybody has a voice. You know, it's your voice. Your vote is your voice. And especially your kids that are going to be first time voters, I definitely would not want them to be discouraged and to look at a system and think it's not going to matter because their voices are going to be so important this election, every election, because it's their future. You know, it may sound corny and trite or whatever, but it really is up to the young people to take an interest and to hold the electors accountable and not just to vote as your parents would vote or as maybe your teacher or somebody else that you admire, but to actually do the work and study it and say, okay, this person says this, this person says that. If it's a new candidate, okay, we support them. Or if if you're voting for someone that maybe is an incumbent, look and see the kind of work that they did in the past. Voting records are public. And it's everybody's responsibility as well as their right to do this. Otherwise, the system doesn't really work, in my opinion. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. We, we all have to take an active part. Yeah, I actually took my daughter to a postcarding event because one of the things that we're noticing is that because of a lot of the redistricting, people don't realize, yeah. and I would imagine it's the same for you with people in that are living overseas, yeah. just helping people understand how to register to vote and also that they may have lost their ability to, to vote wherever they are if they have moved or absolutely. there's been redistricting. So it's basically just reminding them, and particularly in communities that may not have the same level of education or, you know, whatever at-risk communities that, you know, we've been basically going and and writing postcards to just remind them and say, hey, you know, we're welcome to the Democratic Party. And, you know, we want to make sure that you know how to vote and uh, make sure you check. So, and actually, I'll, I'll tell you a little funny story. My daughter and her friends got into a little bit of trouble, nothing major, but it was one of those things where I, you know, they were behaving as if they thought they were adults and they weren't. So they were doing something they probably shouldn't have at their age. Yeah. And so I decided that if, you know, for their punishment, the best thing to do is actually make them behave as adults. So I, I told them that they all had to come with me to this postcarding event. And I said, look, If you want to behave as an adult, you behave as an adult. You're going to come with me and you're going to do something that's responsible. And we're going to go do what we do as an adult. You, you know, help people 
connect and, and have an opinion and have to get their vote out. And they were like, well, we've got homework and we've got this and that. And I said, no, I don't care. You're coming with me. Fantastic mothering. Fantastic <laughs> mothering and fantastic lesson in social responsibility and civics even. No, yeah. fantastic mothering. I think they really enjoyed it, actually. Well, I was going to say, what was the, they may not want to tell you then, you know, as teenagers do, but have you seen a, a what has the result of that been? Is it a raise their political awareness, do you think? Absolutely. They've all been continuing on with the postcarding with me, even though it's not required. And uh, they've, they've also, you know, with the recent protests and everything, they've all been extremely engaged. And I think they're really, this Gen Z is, I mean, I've just, I've been so impressed with them. They're incredibly engaged. They know yeah. they have a voice and they're using it. And it's just yeah. phenomenal. I, I love it. And, and they're calling us out. On not using it enough, exactly, which is and great. That's good, yeah, isn't it? We wouldn't have had the balls to do that to our parents, I don't think. So it's great to see them do it to us because, as I say, everybody needs to be involved and to have a voice. And when you don't say anything, it's the silence is deafening. Yeah, so that's great. Yeah, so I think it's it, it paid off, and in, in, uh, their punishment paid off. In many ways, but I think they're, you know, they're, it's exciting to see how engaged they are. And, and, you know, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned postcards because postcards are something that we do from Democrats abroad. We've done it for different issues where we, local chapters pre pandemic, when you can meet together in small and big groups, even in a cafe or someone's home. And was it 2017 might have been the summer of resistance? campaign, I think, yes, where there were different issues that we would write about and mail to your congressperson. Mm -hmm. And it's impressive when you see posts come in from overseas, you know, when, when the, they're like, I'm your constituent, I vote in your state, you know, this matters to me. And that's one thing that we have learned in Democrats abroad, that advocacy works. If you call your congressperson, if you mail them, it does make a difference. When we meet in Washington, D.C. for our global meeting, we try to alternate years. We always incorporate a door knocking component where we literally go and talk to Congress people and senators. And it makes a difference mm -hmm. because whenever you can humanize your story or put a face, you know, a lot of people think you're overseas living this glamorous life. And how do you know that's not the case? Not <laughs> always the case. I mean, some people live in glamorous lives everywhere. But just because you're an expat doesn't mean you're living some glamorous life. There are a lot of people since you left. I don't know if this was a problem when you were still here, but since you left, some people can't even open bank accounts or investment accounts because of the FATCA. I think you probably know about it. Yep. Laws that were intended to get the big cats who were the tax cheats. You know, we get caught up in that net. And I know stories, at least one story, I don't want to exaggerate because I don't need to exaggerate. There's so many stories. But one person in Spain who had lived there, I think, at least 10 years and just got a check in the mail from their little bank with their entire balance saying, we've closed your account because we can't handle the reporting requirements from the U.S. No notice, no anything. And how do you deal with that if you can't? deposit your paycheck in your local currency where you're living. So that's part of the advocacy. We have a great tax team that advocates on issues like that. You know, we just want to be treated fairly. We don't think we should avoid taxes, but we don't think that there should be an unfair burden on banks. You know, we believe in residence-based taxation, not citizenship-based taxation. 
and just basic issues that legislators don't necessarily think about if we're not there to remind them. Absolutely. And, and actually, I recently interviewed uh, Lisa Mitchell. Her episode will be coming out oh, soon. Her. And uh, we were actually talking specifically about that. And and yes, it did. It started when I was still in Sweden. It, and it was a big issue because the banks were, you know, I had all of my accounts at SEB at the time. And they, you know, all of a sudden they were, they weren't sure whether they wanted to continue doing, you know, managing the accounts for Americans. And when they did, they were sort of like, well, we might have additional fees. There was all kinds yeah. of different things. And some of them were for, you know, for my business accounts. It was the same thing. There was yeah. all this new reporting. And they were like, it's yeah. just too much work. We don't want to deal with it. We're just we're just not going to do accounts for Americans. And I mean, I think in the end, they did, you know, they did end up taking them, but it was a big deal. And, and we were lucky because in Sweden, they are a little more responsive to that. But certainly, in other countries, maybe not so as much. I want to take a little turn because when we first met, you had just started an organization called Black Women in Europe. And you, and I'm so excited to hear that it's still going strong. And it's still, it's still no, but I mean, it's such an important opportunity for women of color to have a voice and to connect. And I've always just admire the work that you do there. Can you tell a little bit of the story about how that came about and sort of the journey of what's going on there now? Absolutely. And it started for, for purely selfish reasons. I had lived, I'm from Washington, D.C. and grew up in Washington, D.C. when it was called, in a time when it was called Chocolate City, when it was majority African-American. My parents met at Howard University, which is, we like to say, one of the best African-American universities in the, in the United States, uh, historically Black college universities, HBCUs. I went there. My cousin went there, my sister. So I, was, I grew up in a town where you, you had a Black mayor, you, know, you had Black neighbors, you had Black police chief, but Black criminals. I mean, it was just maybe not the real world, but it was a reasonable world to me. I mean, you know, I didn't experience racism. I don't want to say I had this ideal life because I knew what was going on in the world, but I had a very strong sense of black pride or pride in myself as an African-American, uh, especially as a, as a woman. And four years in Brussels, I saw a lot of African community there, you know, in the a result of colonization in the Congo. There were a lot of Africans there, a lot of culture. And then the next thing I know, I meet the Swedish guy. I'm in Sweden. And it was like, whoa, okay, I'm very far from home. And not that Sweden is multicultural, because it is, especially compared to 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. I've learned from other people that Americans that have lived there. But again, I was in a small town on the West Coast. And it just I just felt like, okay, I need to connect to other sisters, other people who look like me, other Black women that are doing things, positive things. You know, you try to get back of some of what you miss so much about what you leave behind at home, you know, at home. I mean, I've always had friends of different nationalities, but, you know, I just felt like I, something was missing. And so I said, I'm going to, this is when people were starting the blog. My, I did it. This is 2005, at the end of 2005, when blogging at least was new to me. So very creative name, right? Black mm -hmm. women in Europe. How creative is that? Right. But it was basically, I use it as it was like a mandate for me to research and see what's going on. I didn't know about black women who were members of European parliament or members of parliament in their countries, like in the UK or, or France, which I discovered or scientists, you know, judges at the 
human rights court at the Hague. I knew these women had to exist, but I didn't know about it. So when you start blogging, it's kind of like, okay, you know, you're blogging, you got to put something out every week, you know, so you're doing the research and, and it just made me feel better and more connected to a community, whether I was going to ever meet them or not. And then women started coming to me and saying, oh, this is great. I'm not the only one, you know, you know, you start to connect with people that kind of feel like they're the only one and you're not. And then out of that, a social network. Remember Ning, the Ning platform, I-N-I-N-G? I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Then I started a social network on Ning. The next thing I know, it's Facebook. So you have the Facebook group, the Facebook page. Then in 2000, I'm going to say it was nine or 10. I think it was 10, I believe, or nine. When Michelle Obama was named the most powerful woman in America, I think Time Magazine. I said, you know what? I'm going to do a power list for Black women in Europe. I was so inspired to do that. And I've done one ever since. I think I've had 10 of those now. So maybe. And that, so it just grew and grew and grew. And I just got more inspired and more inspired. So I say it was selfish because it was all for me. I needed it for me. And I'm lucky enough that I wasn't the only person who needed it. And the more I did it and the deeper I dug, the more inspired I got. And the most recent thing that I've been inspired to do with this COVID pandemic really first started was I started a Let's Do Us series. And that was basically because I was, I've got a great network. You know, you're part of it. You've got a great online network. And people were sharing these amazing resources for coping during the pandemic, whether it was these amazing yoga classes or homeschooling tips. People have just gotten so creative with what they're going to do and share and cope. And I said, well, let me put together a source of us. What are we doing for each other? So I started this Let's Do Us workshop series to help us cope during the pandemic. And May was amazing. And we're going to round out in June. Lisa Mitchell, who you, who you mentioned, I actually asked her if she'd do something on financial fitness because she is a financial genius, as you mentioned. And it got so booked up for May and June. I said, Lisa, maybe I could go into July. As you know, in Europe, nothing pretty much happens in the summer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I figured June, I'm cutting it. It's going to be past midsummer. But again, who knows what this summer is going to be? It's the summer of the pandemic summer. You know, I don't want to taint it or name it anything that necessarily has to be negative, but everybody's doing something differently. So I'm proud that the network that resulted out of this selfish act has been so sustaining of each other. And women have given their talents. For example, a woman who was born and raised in Arkansas, but lives in Vienna, she's a, a opera soprano she did a concert she was originally going to do with Puccini and she's and it was a few days after the civil unrest started and she said you know write and dress for her so she said her name is Kristen she said no I'm going to do spirituals African-American spirituals because she said it doesn't feel right I want to honor you know over a hundred thousand deaths we've suffered in the U.S. the civil unrest you know the pushback to police brutality there's a woman from Yemen in Copenhagen, who's originally from Uganda, who's a psychotherapist. She did a free online group session for us, which was amazing. Another sister I know from Indiana, who's lived in the Netherlands, oh, longer than I've been in Europe, and who's published. She did a fantastic two-hour workshop, How to Write Your Life Story in Just 15 Minutes a Day. The talent that we have and the, the willingness of people to gift, you know, I wanted to be a win-win-win, like win mm-hmm. for for us to help us cope, win for the women who were able to showcase their talents 
and a win for the network to, to show what we can do. Because I think a lot of times when you're the visible minority and, you know, you can be the visible minority and at the same time invisible because people don't see you when they don't want to see you, mm-hmm. you know, and then they see you in a negative way when they do want to see you, you know, that it's like, OK, you know, we can be self-sustaining. We can nurture each other. Yeah, we can feed each other. We can help each other through this pandemic because nobody knows what they're doing. We can lean on each other. And so that's been the latest beautiful, I feel like everything I've done from 2005 led up to this because it's been, it's, we've all been hurting yeah. collectively, globally, you know, that that's one of the, I call it pandemic blessings mm-hmm. that I've had is this workshop series. So I love it. That's beautiful. And it, I mean, is it open for others or do you have to be part of the network in you order know, to experience it? No, it's open for others. And for example... Because that was one thing I started. I, I said, oh, I want to keep it closed for the network. And then I thought, you know, that's not really in the spirit of the whole thing. Um, you know, close advertise it there. But then like the mental health session, I was like, okay, that's got to just be for black women in Europe because we've got this collective experience that we're going. And I said, I'm not going to record it. And it was, you know, one of the first people to speak was a sister in the UK who said, you know, I've been a, a victim of racial violence. You know, she said it, it took me months before I would go out in the streets again. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, that's, you know, that's horrible. So in that, you know, you sometimes you need a safe space where you can just talk about that, where you don't have to explain it. Like we, we understand and can understand that fear and that fear she had. Not to say that you couldn't, because she's a mother, you could feel it as well. Mm-hmm. Not to say that you're not empathetic, but in that context of what was going on right now, that was important. But for example, the concert, the, the woman who wanted to sing the spirituals, that was something the whole world needed to hear. Absolutely. You know, so, yeah. yeah. I think I actually even so, shared that one. I saw you post it, and I think I shared it. You did, and I was grateful. And I've got the video I, out there for anybody who wants to see yeah. it, because it was just a gift. She's an amazing talent. And I appreciate that, Heidi. You're a wonderful friend who always amplifies the best of what people are doing. And that's one of the most wonderful things about you. Thank so you. I'm grateful for that and grateful to call your friend and have you in my network. But that's something you've always done, particularly for women. I've noticed that about you from day one. You've mm-hmm. always worked hard to amplify the best of what people are doing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I do try to do that, but you never know whether it's going to resonate or not. But, you know, I just keep on doing, keep on doing what I'm yes. doing and, and you hope keep that it'll doing you. Yeah, I keep on doing me. I am curious, and I hope you're okay with me asking this question, but it's always fascinated me. In in Europe, one of my experiences with people of color was, I think moving to Europe was my first real experience with people of color that were not African-American. And there was a very different experience of that. Since then, even coming back, I've found that there's a lot of people within my network that are black, but they're not African American. They're from, you know, one of my very dearest friends who actually I went to high school with, but I never really, I don't know, I just never really, I guess I, uh, this is awful for me, for me to say, especially in the context of what's going on, but I never noticed his color. For me, he was just Carl, but he was just my buddy, but he's this big black dude, but he has, his mother is African, his mother and his father was Swedish and he grew up in Sweden. So he was, <laughs> he was Carl, the Swedish guy. Like, I just never really thought yeah. of him as my black friend. He was my Swedish friend. Yeah. Anyway, other than him, it was mostly, I have found that most of my colored peers, my people of colored peers also are, have an international background, are are less from the African-American community. 
and the ones that are from the African American community, I met overseas or I met while we were, you know, we were traveling there. But I'm curious if in your experience of creating this, you know, black women in Europe, there's, you know, even some of the people you've mentioned are of African African descent, not African American descent. What is the difference in that experience? Or can is that something that people talk about within your network, within your community of it's a different experience, you come with a different story? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's one reason that I didn't want to call it African American women in Europe, because I didn't want it to just be for African American women. I wanted it to be for the diaspora collectively, because I guess I always knew that they were women of African descent in other countries other than the U.S. that we've had this collective experience. And I could have ended up in the Caribbean and call it, you know, France had their hand in it, you know, Spain, Portugal, that I just happened to, you know, my ancestors happened to end up in the States, you know, could have been Cuba, could have been Haiti, you know, could have been Brazil. So I knew we were scattered. I knew we kind of had a collective experience based on the, on that. But I also know that there's, there's another experience that Africans have had based on colonization and that African women in Europe are different from American women in Europe, just like Asian women in Europe are different, you know, not better or worse or, but just different based on history experience. So even though the group, the language of my group is, is English, people do, will post stories in German or news in German or in French. And I'm grateful for that because anyone can use Google Translate these days, right? And to see that they're active and that's keeping us current on what's happening where they are. And it's funny that you said that too, because um, I was on a panel in London and one of the participants, again, Osandrine Joseph, mm-hmm. who I mentioned to you before when we were talking, who introduced me to Lisa Mitchell. She is, she's French, but I don't know. I want to say she's got a Caribbean background, but I'm not sure. And I don't want to misrepresent Sandrine, but she's a complete Francophone, works for Orange Telecom. and. She was on the panel with me as well. And she said, you know, when I heard about this Black Women in Europe network, she said, I knew it had to be an American behind it. Because she said, we didn't, wouldn't have thought of that. We wouldn't have done it. We wouldn't have, or we would have done it. It wouldn't have been, pan, you know, it wouldn't have covered all of Europe, you know, but it just been locally, whatever. And she actually advised me, Adrian, trademark it. You better trademark it, which I did. And oh, yeah, you know, have we ever trademarked something? And you have to, I forget how many times you have to do it and then you have to the 10th year and then you're good for like another 20 years. I finally made that point, which is like, yay, something to celebrate. But it was this French woman, this black French woman who told me you better trademark that. And I'm glad I did because I kind of wanted had to defend it one time, you know, long over something. Uh, but again, unless you know what you're doing, a good idea. Because somebody tried to put out some award and I was like, wait a minute, did you, were you doing black women? You were, I trademarked. Anyway, so I had the trademark. She was so clever. And right, but it was funny to me that her as a French woman said, it must be an American woman behind this. And not even British, mm-hmm. but American. And I say British because we're, it was in English, but maybe it was obviously it was in American English because mm-hmm. we do have a different language when it comes to that. So I say that to say, I don't know what, but we know we're different, but we want to be together. Like we're different, but the same. And 
I think that's been one of the, the most beautiful things about it as well. Discovering that, you know, we're in Russia, you know, we've been in, you know, one of, one of the women I profiled, you know, came over, you know, she was born in Russia, you know, like we're born, we're not just transplants or expats, you know, like, you know, if you see a black woman, she's, you know, she's not a prostitute that came over here from some country to work. You know, her grandmother may have been born here. Her, you know, we're, we've got roots. Mm-hmm. And that's been one of the most educating things and enlightening things for me to learn. And it's been humbling as well, too, because it's not just the African-American way. I can't always do things that I think they need to be done. You know, I've, I've had pleasure of working, collaborating with sisters on workshops. And, you know, things don't always go the, the way that I think they should be done in the American way. You know, I have to check myself and think, OK, that's how maybe I would have done it in the States, but I'm not in the States. You know, it's going to be done differently here. Mm-hmm. Even when working with black women that I've worked in Sweden that have lived here 30 years or, or more or are born here, um, you know, it's, you know, Heidi, it's the Swedish way. It's not just the American. <laughs> I'm still learning that. So it's the same thing regardless of your skin color. You know, they may have had an African mother, but they grew up born here, grew up here. So they're a, a fabulous blend of African and Swedish mentality. So I've seen that in, in a lot of sisters I've met in all in all the uh different countries that I've been in the Netherlands, the UK, for example, Sweden and Denmark in Germany, I could say most closely Norway as well. So, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think it's really, it's a beautiful thing. I, I mean, I love seeing the, you know, sort of the blend of the different colors everywhere you go. And I've really appreciated in the time that, I mean, I married my husband in 2000 and just my first visit to Sweden in, in 99, just seeing the wave of color change in Sweden in that 20 year period. Happy anniversary, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> can't believe it. it's 20 years. It kind of flew by. And yet a lot has happened in 20 years. I mean, pretty crazy stuff. Yeah. But, um, but it's been amazing to see that change, you know, in Sweden itself. And part of that, of oh, course, yeah. was, you know, there's been several waves of forced immigration and global mobility, oh. and that has obviously had a big influence on it, not always good. And that's not necessarily that immigration is bad, but sometimes it's not handled very well. And sometimes Absolutely. it happens too fast. And, you know, there's all kinds of other issues that go with that. But I think it does it speaks to a lot of what we we talk about on global nomad hacks and that it's not just about moving because you know moving around because you have the ability to be a digital nomad and you can live anywhere in the world but it's sometimes you move because family reasons sometimes you move you know like us we both were what in sweden is called a love refugee which always cracked me mm-hmm. up where you marry you know a partner from another country but there, you know, there's so many different reasons that you may move and how do you create a life that supports that and really honors where you're from and where you're, you are now and, and can be fully present in wherever you're going. But that also allows you to, to thrive in whatever ways, whether it's, uh, you know, emotionally, whether it's financially, whether it's as, you know, being who you are in every sense of the word, no matter where you are. And, you know, you talked a little bit about sort of the challenges with culture and some things that it just takes forever. I always say that, you know, in all the years, I mean, I may be fluent in Swedish, but I will never get the humor. It just, <laughs> they're just not funny to me. <laughs> and I don't think they, and, and, and the thing is, 
I don't think, you know, they don't think I'm funny either. And that was the thing that I struggled with is because, and not that I think, not that I'm a very funny person, but it was more that I just never felt like people didn't get my humor. Like I'm kind of sarcastic. And so, and sarcasm yeah. isn't something that doesn't translate well. It doesn't, when I yeah. lived in Germany, they thought I was obnoxious and I was just being sarcastic, yeah. but it was, yeah. that was when my American came out is when I would sort of let that sarcasm come in. And as a result, I felt that I was perceived as very one-dimensional in when I lived abroad. And I still, but I think as I've gotten older, you know, it's that beauty of turning 50, you don't care anymore. And so you just just let it all out. You let it all out. You are who you are. And it's like, love me as I am. And if you don't like my humor, just as long as I'm not offending you, it's okay. (laughs) Right. Right. No, I've been called too American here in Sweden. And my bet, my, I call her my Swedish bestie. It upset her one time so much. We were at a party and she said, come on, we have to go. We have to go with our husbands. And we left. And she told me later, she said, no, they were just, someone was just saying something too negative about you or something about too American or, and it was probably time to leave the party anyway. And it upset her. And that probably would have upset me before. But like, as you say, there's something about turning 50 and you're just like, you know what? I'm too American. I'm like, oh, thank you. You know, before I could have hugged you. But now with um, COVID, I can't do that. But I look at it as a compliment because that must mean I'm really in my groove. I'm being me. I'm relaxed. I'm having a good time. I'm not trying to impress anybody. I'm not trying to fit in. You know, I realized that. I don't know when I had that epiphany. But to me, that's the translation of that. That's the read. That's what that means. Oh, you're so American. And it's, and as you say, you're not hurting anyone. You know, I think I've just, I finally just felt comfortable enough in my own skin here to just be me. I'm always going to be the outsider or an outsider. You know, I'm never going to be Swedish, regardless if I have dual citizenship in some people's eyes. You know, that's been a, a discussion that I've heard since I've been here. How many generations do you have to go back before someone who immigrated to Sweden is a Swede? You know, if, okay, they were born in Sweden, but if their mother wasn't, some people say she's not Swedish. Different ideas of what does it mean to be Swedish. So I say I'm never going to check any of those boxes, and I don't have to. That's okay. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be me if I did. So once you know, once I got relaxed enough, so if someone would say, "Oh, you're so American," I just say, "Thank you." It's like, "Oh, thank you. I haven't lost it," because you know you can live here long enough that sometimes you forget the English word for things. Does that yes. happen to you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think you know the there's a whole another thing with language, and I know you, you like I do. You speak several different languages, and and there's there's a whole thing with polyglots in that. You know, the more languages you learn, the less well you speak your own native tongue. And part of that is because your brain is always looking for the best word for whatever the thing is. So when, you know, mm. when you look at something like this that I'm holding up and in English, it's a cup. But if I'm, you know, in the UK, you might call it something different, a mug or whatever. But then you have, mm-hmm. my brain will actually come up with that whatever this is in every language that my brain knows how to process it. And then Mm -hmm. it has to think about who I'm communicating with as to how I'm going to express it. And often when you're living in an environment where people are multilingual, you tend to actually use those terms altogether. So you end up in this sort of blended, we, we always joke that our household language is Swinglish. 
because yeah. it is just, you know, there's some words like, you, you know, logum that don't translate or fika you can't or translate. they just, they just don't, you know, you can explain them, but they don't right. really translate to get a full sense of the cultural historical sense of the, what the word and what it means. And, and so sometimes you just have to use them. And that was one of the things I loved about Brussels. And as we both went to Boston university, Brussels, spending a good period of time there, it's such a total blend of so many different cultures and so many different Mm -hmm. languages. There's this bizarre English, that's, it's, you know, that's where I started saying that, you know, people say that English isn't the most spoken language in the world, but really it is, but it's not English, it's bad English. Everybody (laughs) speaks a little bit of English, but enough to communicate, right? But those people who only speak a little, don't say I speak English. They don't admit that they speak English, but they particularly now with the internet so much more so, I mean, this was, you know, 25 years ago that I went to business school in Brussels. But you know, since then, the internet has become so much more ingrained in that, I mean, kids are watching YouTube videos in different languages, oh, yeah. they look at them with the subtitles, they, you know, it's no longer something that you get a little bit of, you actually get fairly proficient in it, even if you're not comfortable with speaking it out, your brain is processing that way. Oh, yeah. So the way that our minds process language, of course, we're going to lose the words. And you know, yeah. it's a, it may be a little bit quirky. How do you say, or, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. or something like and that. It could be the simplest it's a, thing. Yeah, it could be the simplest thing. You're not even trying to express a complex thought. It can be the simplest thing and you, you forget what it is. So I'm glad to know there's a reason behind that. Thank you. <laughs> that makes me feel better. It um, is okay. It's actually because you're processing <laughs> so many languages. And it's very, I mean, the people that are actually very skilled at switching from language to language are ones that they've spent a lot of time training, not just in the individual language, but in transition. One of the things that I like to do when I know that I'm going to be in a place where I'm going to be switching languages a lot. So when we're in France, we have a very large Scandinavian community, a lot of family and and, Mm -hmm. and extended friends that live in that region. So when we're there, we're speaking Swedish, and then you switch between Swedish, French, and English all the time. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I will do Duolingo and actually fly in through Spain. So we go Spain, you know, Spanish, French, Swedish, English. So Mm -hmm. I'll, before I go, I'll do Duolingo for 20 minutes in three languages, just switching from Duolingo. Yeah. And I do it just so that it's like, okay, I can switch. Okay. Now I'm doing Swedish. Now I'm doing French. Now I'm doing Mm -hmm. Spanish, which Spanish is my worst language, but at least it gets a little bit so that I don't end up sitting in a cafe and you know, I go to do my order and I ask in French rather than Spanish when it's a Spanish waiter. Well, I've done that. I'll find myself in a Francophone country speaking Swedish mm-hmm. and people are looking at me and I'm like, okay, did I just say that in Swedish? <laughs> it's like, okay, yes, I did. And then you don't have the trouble speaking. So that's a good tip. I'll use that tip. Yeah, um, it just, you know, it, it trains time. your brain. I, I mean, that's not really the purpose of the app. It's to teach you one language, but I find it helps with doing that. Just getting your brain to switch between the languages and train mm. that is a, it's a good little tool. And it gives you enough of the conversational that you can place your order without confusing the waiter. <laughs> right. Which is always a nice thing to do because you don't yeah. want to be that American who can't place an order in the local language or that American who can't you know, say, please, thank you, hello, or goodbye. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, but when you live overseas, it's like, okay, come on, I can put up more of an effort. 
in that. Exactly. Well, it's the you base know, piece. Please, thank you. Where's the bathroom? And count to, t- you know, count to 100. And you're in pretty good shape. <laughs> I like to say, because you talk about not having good Spanish, I think I can count. But I like to say, you know, cerveza, por favor. What is it? I can get a beer. Mm-hmm. Poyoris, a meal. And donde, donde a baño. Yep. I think that's where's the bathroom. Yep. Where's the so bathroom? Like survival. You got it. Survival. Get a, get a drink, get a meal. And where's the bathroom? You know, and how to say your name, you know, and, and thank you. But, you know, that's that's a bad joke of mine. But I think we have a responsibility to to try. Absolutely. Um, because, as you say, when you live overseas, I don't know, you don't really feel like you're a tourist anywhere anymore after a while. You yeah. feel like, as you're you visitor. say, like a digital nomad or a global citizen, you feel like you just would be rude if you didn't even try to have some sense of politeness. And I think that's impolite when you demand or expect everyone to speak English. Yeah. That's just impolite. Yeah. No, I I remember when I went to study in Germany and I was studying Austria, but the first part was in Germany. And the only thing that I knew how to say, because my brother taught it to me from when he had been traveling around, was haben Sie Feuer. So we're talking about, do you have a light? (laughs) We're talking about way back. You know, I was 20 years yeah. old and I still smoked. Not anymore. Haven't for many years. But Haben Zifoya was the only thing I knew how to say. Yeah. But, but that's okay because that gets you in. It's a courtesy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It starts a conversation. Anyway, yeah. we have gone way over, but it's been such a pleasure talking to you that oh, I could talk to you for another time. hour. Is so. I mean, it's just so nice to reconnect with you. And I'm so excited for you to be part of the Democrats Abroad Delegate Group. And I just, I feel like we're being well represented there. So thank you for your efforts there and for your amazing work with Black women in Europe. Keep on doing that and highlighting the amazing women and connecting the amazing Black women who are doing really well, great Heidi, stuff. Thanks for being a friend and for thinking of me when you're doing this fantastic series. And I love what I've heard so far. On the on the series, and I can't wait to to see the other ones coming up. So thanks again, happy anniversary, and I hope you have a fantastic summer. Thank you, you too. Such a treat always, and stay in touch. For those of you who uh, want to find Adrian, don't forget you can just check out our show notes, and we'll make sure we'll put links there to connect you to her work and uh, to make sure that you get out and get your vote because that is very important. doesn't matter where you are on this planet. If you are an American, you better be voting because it's critical, particularly this year. And if you enjoyed the show, thank you for sticking with us. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure you subscribe if you haven't already so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes, particularly Lisa's that we already spoke about. And uh, always appreciate a rating and review. And if you do take the time to do that, please make sure you let us know because we like to send a little love back. Thank you again for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye for now.